0: Buying a business takes a lot more than credit card swipes and fancy signatures. It would be a lot easier if it worked that way, but if buying a business was easy, everyone would do it. The financing of funds to complete a deal takes a lot of communication. Communication between the buyer, the seller, the brokers, and the bank are essential. Without it,
1: deals can fall apart. The beginning part of looking at selling a company starts and ends sort of with the financials. So, you know, oftentimes we'll work with clients for months and months before we ever go to market to make sure that the financials are in a position to be, you know, accepted in the marketplace. And then once we go into a deal, of course, those have to be vetted by the buyer and anybody helping the buyer through the process, whether that's a due diligence expert or an accountant or a lawyer there are people in the background that will look through those financials and make sure that you know everything is is the way it's supposed to be i'm your host randall sylvie and this is the deal closers podcast
0: on today's episode we're talking about funding when it comes to buying a company there are a lot of different ways to go about the purchase more ways than you think. Jason and Ron
1: from WebsiteClosers.com explain the different ways these deals are made. A lot of people don't realize you know, how some of these deals get financed. We always hear sort of a note of surprise from buyers who are looking at a company for say $3 million and assume they need to put 25, 30% down. And the truth is that the down payment really can be as little as 10%, sometimes 15%, depending on your qualifications as a buyer, you know, you know what your credit score looks like, you know what the business looks like that you're buying, but being able to, you know, buy a company for, you know, say 3 million dollars and only put 300,000 dollars down, your ROI can be very quick. Especially for an e-commerce company where you're getting all this inventory as well in the deal, you're potentially not buying inventory for a month or two and you can get that ROI. We've seen it as, as, as soon as four months, but certainly within a year for the down payment made, you can potentially make all of your money back if things are set up properly.
2: The relationship on lending is between a bank and a buyer more than much more than it is a
1: seller as it relates to the buyer and their process in this deal, you know, they strike a deal usually with a letter of intent. They start the due diligence process and and right along that, if they're going to go to a bank and depending on the deal size, you know, they'll start that process at the same time. And, And if it's an SBA deal, we just do so many of those, so we talk about those frequently. But if it is an SBA deal, we're going to be, you know, introducing them to banks right away. Banks that we know lend in this space. Banks that we know are going to give them the best deal. And then, you know, really, it's about the buyer going through that process. And a lot of it's personal. You know, you have to provide a, a personal financial statement, and, and you know, give them all the information about your past and you know, also submit a business plan and make sure that business plan makes sense with this particular business. You have to submit your resume. There's a lot that goes into it. Obviously a lot of documents that need to be signed. These tend to be pretty big deals. And so the seller really isn't involved at all during that initial process. But as time progresses, the underwriters will have questions about the company, questions about the financials, et cetera, that the seller or the seller's advisors may need to, you know, get involved in. But overall, as it relates to the bank and the buyer in that process, the seller really doesn't have that much involvement.
0: A lot of these first steps are taken by the buyer. One way to fund deals are through SBAs. SBA loans are loans funded through the Small Business Administration. It's a method
1: Jason and Ron recommend to a lot of buyers. I think a lot of people, for the initial companies that they acquire, they would be surprised that they can use the SBA to buy the company. And so I think a lot of people tend to go to family and friends and use their own personal financials, maybe use a 401k, maybe do a HELOC on their house and grab as much money as they possibly can and try to do the acquisition that way. And they don't realize that instead of doing all of those things, Or in addition to doing all of those things, they can also go to the SBA. And, you know, this route is beautiful for deals under $5 million because you amortize it over 10 years. The interest rate is very nice, very favorable for the M&A space. And you've got this other set of eyes out there that's also doing an underwriting process with you alongside, especially if you're brand new to the process, and you only need to put 10 to 15% down you know so if you thought you needed to put you know 6 or 700,000 dollars down in a deal and instead it's 200 or 300 you know that gives you a lot of extra cash in your bank account as float if something were to go wrong versus if you try to put all of your money into a deal and not have a whole lot left over that's a risk profile you know that's that's when you start getting into trouble if things do go the wrong way or if you know a lot of reasons why people fail is because of taxes You know, they don't properly allocate for taxes and their cash flow, and they just get upside down and they can't afford them. And so you need to have buffer, you have significant buffer, and by leveraging to buy a deal, you end up in a situation where you you can keep that money. Plus, you know, these banks give working capital loans in addition to the regular loan for the acquisition of the business. So if you buy a company for you know $3 million, you put $300,000 down, you'll also get a working capital loan if you ask for it. And as long as the deal makes sense for the bank, you know, that can be, Ron, what is that? $50,000 up to $100,000 sometimes for those loans? Sure
2: is. And it, they tailor it around the deal. So they they need to see the need for the buyer, but they're kind of aggressive on it because the SBA has a mandate that they need to be properly capitalized right out of the gate. One other thing I think that's really important too, as Jason mentioned, where on the terms, you know, you're talking about a 10-year amortization. Now, there is no prepayment penalty on these loans. So, you know, we all know how the economy goes. You know, you go through four or five, six years of really good economy, but you can also watch a recession hit and a slide. When you're looking at a 10-year amortization, your payments are pretty low, which means that if the economy does slow down, it should not affect your ability to be able to pay. Now, I think a lot of the smart buyers will, you know, during really good times when they're making far more than they need to cover debt service, will start to prepay these loans so that they don't go the whole 10 years. But even if it once again, there is a slowdown, you're kind of protected because it is a low payment in regards to the cash flow that kind of allow a, a, the comfort of a buyer to know that he's in pretty good shape.
0: This is a good path for deals under $5 million, but for situations that are more expensive, there are alternative options to consider. And
1: we also help with that process also for buyers and private equity groups and family offices that are looking to leverage as they're doing those deals. But as you get up into you know the eight-figure transactions, there's sort of two different kinds of financing models we see. One is going to be a sponsor out in the capital markets, and those tend to be private equity groups where they'll sign for a deal, they'll do an initial due diligence, put a data room together, and then they're taking that information out to the markets, You know, lenders that are in the capital markets that want to work on deals that are, say, over $2 million of EBITDA. And you know, it's not uncommon for them to go up to 100 different banks and lenders, debt and equity folks looking to you know, get some money to buy this deal. And so those are called sponsors. And I would say of the deals over 2 million, probably 25% of the deals tend to be sponsors that are out there in the capital markets looking. Another way that those guys do these deals is they'll, you know, before they even start looking to buy a business, they'll go and create relationships with lenders or debt or equity providers and sort of have these guys in the background that have either given them a line of credit or giving them sort of an understanding that if you find a deal it will be approved as long as you meet you know x y and z requirements. So that's another way. Obviously another way is if they have the money on their balance sheet or that can also go for wealthy individuals who might not want to go say an SBA route or maybe it's an you know a deal between 5 and 10 million dollars it's above the SBA but below the capital markets. You know wealthy individuals will come in and, you know, use their wealth to be able to, you know, get a good deal mm-hmm. on a transaction. So they might actually pay a lower multiple because they have the cash. It's going to be a quicker deal. You know, that's certainly another way, you know, we see these done. But if you have it on your balance sheet, or you have a line of credit for acquisitions, you know, that's another way we see it. You know, with the family offices, usually they have the money internal, because that's money coming from wealthy families that are all sort of working together, whether it be one family or multiple families to go in and do a transaction. But even then, sometimes you'll see them try to leverage a little bit of that, you know, because obviously they want to use as much of other people's money as they can to do a transaction. So, there's all different ways to fund these these deals and it really kind of depends on the deal size.
2: Yeah, and also looking at even the under $5 million deals where there's really primarily three forms of purchase. The first as we discussed was SBA. That's where we push everyone The second is cash deals. Now, you know, it's a fluid situation. There are no rules, but we tend to find that most people that do use cash, you know, they're saying, hey, I don't have to go to a bank. You don't have to wait. I can close quickly. And in return, I want a lower price. And sometimes that's attractive to a seller. So they will actually, you know, take the cash deal and a lower price. Usually people who are using their own cash do offer less. And the reason why, once again, you're using your own money you're not getting a ten year amortization from a seller on whatever, you know, like let's say, you know, it's a three million dollar deal, somebody comes in and says, I'll give you two million in cash and a million in seller financing. Well, that seller's not waiting ten years to get his money. So those payments are going to be much higher. And so the buyer is going to fight every step to make sure he's paying as little as he can, keeping his payments as low as he can.
0: These kinds of cash deals do happen, but not everyone can walk around with bags of money. And we're talking big numbers here, millions and millions of dollars. More times than not, a different kind of financial method is taken.
2: Now, there are cases, too, where companies might be distressed and maybe they had better days and they're struggling right now. And the only way that company is going to find a suitor is maybe with seller financing. And so it'll be a smaller down payment. And they're going to require, you know, the seller to have a lot of skin in the game and that the company performs in order for the seller to get his payments on that company.
1: Yeah. And right along with that comes the structure of these deals and what they look like. And so, you know, depending on the transaction, and I'll kind of talk about those that are above $5 million for now, depending on the transaction, a lot of times you're going to have buyers that want the sellers to actually continue to own a portion of the business. So they're actually going to input their own rolled equity into the deal. That can be, you know, 10%, as low as 10%, as high as maybe 40%. If it goes above 50%, then you know, it's really a growth investment, and you're not really selling the majority of the company. But most of these, if there's rolled equity, it's going to be in that 10 to 40%. I would say the average is probably 25 20%, somewhere in there. And that's a way for a buyer to acquire a company. And you get a couple things out of it. One, there's no cash, right? It's equity. So at some point in time, the sellers going to have to exit a second time, which is great for them because as the company grows they 're going to get this second bite of the apple and be able to exit and The assumption is that the multiple should be higher, and the earnings should be higher when they have that second exit but you know for a buyer it 's a, a way for them to mitigate risk also you know so if, if there 's a high multiple in a business and they really like the business you know, you can either use a rolled equity opportunity or you can do an earn out. Like Ron said, you could use seller notes. Sometimes you'll see consulting agreements as part of a deal. And the whole idea is that the cash portion of the deal represents, you know, obviously, what is most important to the seller. And for the buyer, they're trying to always offset that amount by as much as they can. And another element of all of that is even on the cash amount, you know, they may be, you know, going out and, and raising funds, you know, through a lender um, or through an equity provider or whomever to actually pay that cash amount too. So there's a lot that goes into each of these structures. And to make it even more complicated, you know, sometimes you'll have guys that are sponsors out there and they're doing a roll up. So they'll do, you know, two, three, four, five deals all at the same time and they're packaging it all together. So they get the benefit of all of the EBITDA of all of those companies and then they take that to market and that becomes a little bit more interesting in the capital markets because you know, one company might only have a million of earnings, which wouldn't be interesting. But when you have all of them combined, maybe it's 5 million of earnings. And when you do that, you know, have this rolled up opportunity to go out and raise funds to acquire all of them at the same time. So there's all different kinds of structures you see on the buyer side. And then of course, you've always got this battle of wills between the buyer and the seller. Because the seller, you know, you ask 100% of them and 100% of them will all say I want all cash at closing. And of course, 100% of deals don't close with all cash closing. So you kind of have to take it back from there. It's part of people like Jason and Ron's
0: job to walk buyers and sellers through this process. This is business. They're working with entrepreneurs. Nine times out of 10, sellers' concerns and strengths do not lie on the numbers. Getting your financials in order is not a light task. This finance process can take upwards of 90 days. Do buyers commonly come in with their finances in place already? And if not, what kind of help do you provide in that aspect?
1: I would say it's 50-50. Usually they'll have some sort of system. As an example, if they're an Amazon company, they may have, you know, they may be using Bench or Zero or some other software to do their financials and they may be doing themselves where they're inputting all the information themselves. These aren't all necessarily accurate because, as we know, business owners aren't exactly accountants. You know, so they might not be keeping proper track of inventory levels and those kinds of things and might not be thinking about, you know, making sure that the company from an accounting standpoint looks as positive as it possibly can for the marketplace. So that oftentimes when they come in and we look at the financials, we'll refer them to a partner. Uh, one of our partners is Yaw Capital. We refer over to them. And allow them to come in and sort of do a cleanup of the books. That takes about a week to two weeks. We get everything into accrual and everything in line. Make sure that you know we've looked at all of the financial system to make sure it makes sense for when it's reviewed in diligence by a buyer. And then we kind of go forward from there. Now, there are times when someone will come in and they've literally done nothing for years except for maybe an Excel spreadsheet and we've had companies in the multi millions that have come to us with only excel spreadsheets and you know from those perspectives you know you're talking about potentially millions of transactions that would have occurred in the back end that you know all need to be dealt with and put into a system so that can take sometimes a month month and a half even two months to you know fully get those financials prepared for the marketplace and so we kind of work with them throughout to get them ready but There are others that, you know, from the very beginning, they'll have an accountant or a CPA that's handling their financials on a monthly basis. They're also filing their tax returns. Their tax returns match their income statements and balance sheets, so everything's all nice and fluid and comes to us. But I would say that's definitely rare from what we normally see. Normally, there's got to be some sort of a cleanup to get it into market-ready financials.
0: Okay, That kind of ties into some of the questions about how sellers' expectations factor into the the funding methods chosen.
2: When it comes to the sellers, a seller has one main goal. How much cash can I get at closing? It's very rare that they're looking for anything other than that. Now, what's interesting on this whole scenario is that most brokerages don't like to go down the road of SBA financing because it's hard. Most deals are turned down. And they're turned down for a reason, because they're packaged improperly. We know everything from A to Z that a bank is looking for. And I mean, everything from how to craft a resume to how to you know fit the buyer with the company to how to best explain the finances. We don't just submit you know the information on a P&L. We'll break it down with a flow chart showing a seller's discretionary earnings report. And so, we make it as easy as possible every step of the way. So, when a a seller is looking to sell, you know, he's looking for how much money can I get. Now, if you're looking at a buyer coming in and that buyer is going to put money down, you're going to be very lucky to get 50 or 60% down. When we go through a bank, we're going to get probably 85% down. That is a huge difference. So, it's exciting to a seller knowing that most of his sales price is dropping into his pocket at the closing table. So, we really push hard to get any deal under 5 million in front of a bank if it can qualify because you know once again even looking at it from a buyer side you're probably going to be more aggressive in your offer because your payments are low because they're amortized over 10 years you're only putting down 10 maybe a little bit more maybe 12 to 15% on the higher side so once again it's so favorable to a buyer that It makes perfect sense for him to want to go to the bank, but it makes sense for the seller as well because he's getting more cash and he's getting a higher multiple because it allows that buyer to be more aggressive.
1: Yeah, and seller expectations are, you know, really a very important part of this whole thing. You know, we're talking about, you know, how to finance a deal, et cetera, But it all starts with those expectations. And we and and a lot of other firms around the country were interviewed by the Wall Street Journal not too long ago. And, you know, they asked you, what is the number one thing plaguing your company, you know, what's the hardest part about your M&A process? And, you know, most people all said seller expectations. And that's the case, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, whether it be networking meetings or looking online to see, you know, what the comps are, when a seller comes to us, it would be odd for them not to have a very big number in their mind. Usually we have to bring them down to, you know, reality. Now we're the kind of firm that, you know, if we have a client and the deal is a good deal, we'll go to market at a much higher than market standard value for the company and give it a shot. You know, whether we're going after a strategic or, you know, it's a particular situation where we've got a very high growth company where we're looking at projections, we'll still take those companies to market if that's what the client wants. But of course, with those kinds of high expectations, they come at a cost and that is, you know, usually time. And in addition to time is structure. And that's what we're kind of talking about here is, you know, how are we going to structure these deals where the more aggressive we are when we go to market, the higher multiples we use at market and the more projections we use, if we use a discounted cash flow model, et cetera, the more a buyer wants to mitigate that risk. And the way they're going to mitigate risk is by reducing the cash portion as much as they can. And increasing the rolled equity, the earnouts, and the promissory notes so that they aren't putting all of their eggs in one basket at the very beginning. And also so that the seller still has, you know, their feet to the fire after closing to help be incentivized to, you know, move this along and continue to grow it after closing. So so that seller expectation piece kind of starts the whole discussion point and that will determine, you know, what that structure looks like during the closing process. But if someone comes to us and says, "Look, I just want to sell quickly. I want it to be at a reasonable multiple. I just kind of want out." Those kinds of deals, first of all, you know, usually we'll push a client to be a little bit more aggressive. But those kinds of deals tend to be a little bit more favorable on the cash side, a little bit more favorable on what we call the guaranteed portion, which would be, you know, promissory notes that have a personal guarantee, cash, Consulting agreements, these are things that are guaranteed to be paid out uh, regardless of how the the company does. Earnouts are based on performance. And then of course ruled equities based on performance too, because your equities value is either going to rise or fall depending on how the company does after closing. There is no deal if the finances are not in order.
2: When it comes to going to market, we know where these companies are going to land almost probably 95 plus percent of the time. We sell absolutely just you know hundreds of these companies and so through experience we have a pretty good feel. We understand this process so well, so in depth that we really have a flow chart, you know, of what happens per week You know, every step of the way. For example, with a bank deal, you know, we know that in the beginning we have to start due diligence simultaneously with the bank. Why? Because due diligence is going to take two to four weeks and the bank is going to take two to four weeks. Both of those processes are operating independently of each other. So we don't want somebody to say, well, as soon as I'm done with due diligence, then we'll go talk to the bank because you just now pushed the closing back another month. And so I think it's really important. You know, to explain the process from beginning to end to both sides so that expectations can be met. And once the funding mechanism has been chosen, you know, we have every step of the way what has to happen next in order to get to the finish line according to the closing date that we've written into the asset purchase agreement. And it's important to understand that you have to hit that goal because it can be really counterproductive to a buyer when he says, okay, I'm making an offer, I get my offer accepted, and I'm going to close in 90 days. But if that buyer were to say, well, it only makes sense to me that I don't want to go to a bank until I'm sure that the due diligence is good, what's going to end up happening is it's going to roll past the 90 days in all likelihood. Well, we find this all of the time in our world. A seller will grow so quickly that by the time you hit 90 days, he's not only meeting expectations, but you know, <laughs> exceeding them tremendously sometimes. And so they'll turn to us and say, I don't think I'm getting a good price for this company. Now, right about then, we've already got approval from the bank. We're moving down the home stretch. We're starting the, the closing, which can take you know maybe two, three, four weeks with an average of probably three, three and a half. And so, you know, but we've already crossed the 90th day. And so the seller turns to us and says, I'm not selling for this. And he no longer has to because that asset purchase agreement technically ended when we put that closing day in there 90 days later so we have to really guide this process well once the funding mechanism has been you know uh, chosen and we walk down that path
0: thanks to jason and ron for taking the time to talk to me feel free to send us any questions you have about mergers and acquisitions we'd be happy to explore the answers Till next time this has been deal closers